Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luhr, and I'm excited to have a great friend and longtime friend with me on the line here today, all the way from London, Mr. Nigel Rushman. Welcome to the podcast, Nigel. Thank you very much, Marcus. It's going well so far because I'm in Monaco. Oh, you're in Monaco. Oh, here we go. Perfect. Well, that's where we normally meet anyway. Um, and uh, good to see that you are in your in your other neighborhood there. Um, now, let's get in here. And, and as usual, let me just quickly introduce yourself a little bit more. Um, you know, as much as there are many folks will know the name Rushmans, um, but maybe not everyone. So let me just sort of give the short intro of uh, how I would describe what you've done here for the last almost 40 years in our industry. Um, you are the man really on the events, planning, and operational side. Um, and whether it comes to the Rugby World Cup, ICC Cricket, uh, the Commonwealth Games, Asian Games, uh, or many other competitions, I think you've been there. Um, and really, it, yourself and your team have always been there behind the scene, uh, putting it together. And, and that's what we were going to be talking about, starting all the way there in the 80s uh, with these events and, of course, uh, you know, rolling it up to uh, the more recent ones. Um, you're also a judge, or you were a judge, at the Great British Entrepreneur Award, which is great. Um, you've been an advisor to Qatar uh, 2022, uh, as well as versus various others' uh, advisory roles. So uh, you've seen it all. You've been there. Um, as I said, we, we normally meet in Monaco during Sportel and have a coffee outside and uh, you know, and compare notes. So uh, now we're going to have this. Uh, we're going to do it over over a call here. Um, I'm in Bangkok with a stuffed nose, um, so I've been walking around outside, and every time I cough, everyone looks at me funny. So, uh, but uh, we'll get through this. Um, so, Nigel, let's get started here. 1982 is, from what I can sort of see, uh, is when your career kicked off uh, with the World Athletics Championship in Crystal Palace. Uh, tell me a bit more about it, or how did you get into the industry in the first place? Well, that, that's remarkable. That's gone well done with the research, Marcus. That's gone so far back, I can barely remember it. But um, <laughs> I, I, do, I, I do recall that that was very early on in my business career. I've really always worked for myself and had my own businesses. And at that, that mm. stage, I had catering, promotion companies, and marketing businesses. I was very, very young, very green, and I remember um, driving up to Crystal Palace to meet with Canon, who were working at, who were presenting. I'm not sure whether it was the World Athletics or, but it was an, a, a major athletics tournament. And Canon wanted us to uh, do a lot of the marketing work for them. They wanted us to do a lot of the graphics, on-site graphics, etc., hospitality and things. I was fr terribly excited about it. Um, and, and <laughs> you knew nothing about negotiating with um, Japanese clients at the time. Uh, I remember the first visit driving back down the motorway to my uh, uh, tiny little office down in Kent at the time, thinking that uh, I'd won a very major deal. Things didn't really turn out that way. Um, did, we did some work, but it was a small project. Um, but nevertheless, it probably was my first introduction to the world of world of sport and the business of sport at that time. Okay, how, how old were you roughly at that uh, just at that time? Oh, Matt's never been my strong point. Born in 1956, so lately. Right. Um, 56 in the 80s, but <laughs> yeah, 30, well, 30 odd. Okay, not even that. Um, yeah, no, well. So, uh, so this was definitely early, and uh, but you, before that, your businesses were had nothing to do with sports. So this was sort of your first uh, entry into the world of sports. You were doing more general things yeah. in, in, in PR and media. Yes, correct, Marcus. By that time, I think the first major foray into sport was when um, my major client at the time, who was also a partner in the business, Peter De Savary who um, your older listeners will remember, challenged for the America's Cup with his uh, victory challenge for the America's Cup. And we worked with another partner of mine, uh, David Redfern, on, on that victory challenge. And that was really, for me, the first time that I was deeply exposed to uh, the media in sport and how they were working. Um, 
it was a it was a pretty rough introduction in some ways because we were an outside outside firm brought in to work on that on that project and it upset just about every yacht racing PR company that there was because we were unheard of um, it upset the racing yacht racing media because they weren't the target audience for our client uh, he was interested in financial coverage um, and um, so it upset and rocked a lot of boats but watching that happen was interesting for me because I, I thought the way media was serviced at major sports events wasn't particularly professional. I thought it was, at the time, it was cup of tea, throw them a bit of information and let them get on with it. That, um, so that, that started giving me some ideas. Interesting. Well, I mean, and, and I, I love this because I've had some others uh, on the on the podcast before, which are similar. They they kind of stumbled into the sport in the world of sports. It wasn't really their sort of automatic pl original plan. Um, but you got obviously very deep into it, and and I'll, I'll jump sort of almost a decade ahead a bit here. And uh, in the sort of early '90s, I think it was '91, you were then involved in the Rugby World Cup, which was a major event across five countries in Europe. Um, and so, you know, was that your first big, big gig? Um, because you've obviously were then involved with rugby for many more years to come. Um, how did that all come about? Yeah, definitely. I mean, between the period that we, we just talked about, we dipped in and out. We were principally a PR marketing business and, and a stra strategy business. And we dipped in and out of sport. In 1991, I was introduced to rugby world cup by a friend and and colleague peter selby who was then the uh, chief executive of keith prowse hospitality and he affected the introduction to rugby world cup and said that uh, we wanted uh, they wanted some media services and accreditation services and to be honest no uh, not many people really understood what that meant at the time mm. and um And if I'm honest, I'm not sure we entirely understood what it what it meant. <laughs> But, uh, I remember us doing a huge amount of work to get proposals together. Um, we were very fortunate in that, um, I mean, a, a funnier side story was that the tournament director was a lovely man, Ray Williams, no longer with us, sadly. But Ray Williams um, came to interview this uh fellow he'd never heard of who was running some PR company in London, uh, Nigel Rushman. And on the day he came to interview me, obviously it hadn't occurred to me, of course, Ray Williams' name, he's Welsh. And I took him for lunch at a restaurant around the corner and it happened to be St. David's Day and they'd flooded the restaurant with, with daffodils. I'm sure he thought, he thought it was marvellous and I'm sure he thought I arranged it all. It was a coincidence, <laughs> actually. But anyway, we, we got on very well and we worked extremely hard um, because in those early days of Rugby World Cup, the first Rugby World Cup had been in 1987. And I noticed on one of your previous podcasts, um, Michael Payne mentioned that West Nally, of course, had pretty much founded that Rugby World Cup in New Zealand. Right. Um, Alan Callan had done a, a deal um, with well, I won't get into that too much but he'd done a deal and actually owned the rights in perpetuity for the World Cup after after that at that time so the 1991 World Cup staged in England Scotland Ireland Wales and France was an extremely complex undertaking at the time um, you've got five rugby unions some of whom weren't the best of friends who didn't particularly want to talk to each other They weren't necessarily cooperating with each other. You had three telecom companies, uh, three legal jurisdictions to deal with. And it was an extremely complex thing to pull off with different um, uh, media, obviously, in each country. The prioritizing of different home nations media, obviously, when someone's hosting a World Cup in their nation they feel they have the priority but there's also the priority of the competing nations of the teams on the day um, so it was a big learning curve for everybody involved I put together a, a very young team excellent people actually um, uh, you know some of whom stayed with me for many years 
Um, interestingly, some of them now have quite senior positions in sport or other other places elsewhere. It just makes me feel older all the time. But um, but it was a big learning curve. Accreditation was really growing up at that stage. I mean, your listeners will know what accreditation was, but in the, in, in the old days, people weren't nearly as serious about it because it hadn't been such a big issue. The main, perhaps the Olympic Games, of course, they it, it may have been serious there, and potentially the World Cup, but not so much. Um, and the Olympic Games, of course, is still probably the most complex accreditation operation there is. Anyway, and we and after that, we realised that there wasn't really anybody out there who specialised in accreditation and media management. And the reason that that time that those two uh, Function areas, as they've uh, come to be called, uh, went together was because um, the media were the biggest single user constituents of the accreditation systems. So um, it made sense to have them operating together at that time. And uh, obviously, it opened a market gap for us, and we started, tended to specialize in accreditation, media management. Uh, security a bit later on and then rolled out to other major event services. Yeah, awesome. And and I know you did this. I mean, I I went to your website and had a look at the list and it is very long. Um, it was amazing events from all over the world. Um, and we'll maybe we'll touch on a couple uh, and, and some of the stories, of course, behind it. Uh, but before we go there, I, I quickly just wanted to... Sorry, go, go ahead. I hope I remember them, Marcus. Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll mention some of it. I know it, the list is very long. I can I, I wouldn't be surprised if you can't remember all of them. But uh, before we get there, I, I'd love to dig into this. What you mentioned earlier about uh, the gentleman who owned the Rugby World Cup rights, um, and obviously that obviously I'm assuming is no longer the case. In per, especially in perpetuity. I mean, the only one I know who ever had a deal along those lines was Bernie Ecclestone with F1, right? And that was a hundred year deal, I believe, which he sort of signed himself up for. Um, so how did it work? How did someone have a, a rugby World Cup rights in perpetuity? And which were the what was the rights? Was it the commercial rights, or which which part was it? Right. So uh, the going question was Alan Callan. Um, Alan's no longer with us. He passed away a few years ago. Um, he's also a fellow resident of Monaco. Actually, Alan had negotiated, and this was prior to my. I mean, I knew him, but it was prior. We we became. Uh, partners and joint shareholders, uh, his company, CPMA, Callan Palmer mm -hmm. Morgan Associates, um, and Rushman's merged for a, for a time. And, right. and uh, I became the group chief, group chief executive or managing director, I can't remember, of that business. And that was just prior to the Rugby World Cup, so probably in 1990. Um, Mm -hmm. Alan had negotiated with John Kendall Carpenter, who at the time, uh, this was just prior to me knowing, so I'm a bit not sure of the details, but he had negotiated um, a contract in perpetuity for all commercial rights for the Rugby World Cup. So that was, to, um, yeah, and that was uh, at um, a percentage representation rights that were varied amongst the various categories, whether that was merchandising, licensing, or, you know, broadcast, sponsorship, etc. Right. And um, Alan was an extremely smart guy, but very controversial. That contract, of course, was very controversial and, extre <laughs> yeah. and extremely valuable. Uh, yep. But bear in mind that the, 90, the 87 World Cup in New Zealand, when West Nally had got it going and founded it, I, th I think that, I can't remember the exact figures, but I think they got revenue up to maybe four or five or maybe even as much as seven million, I can't remember, which is pretty good for an inaugural event. But it exploded in, in the 91, and I think 91 it went to $28 million. Uh, mm. And, you know, some would say it probably could have got higher if Alan wasn't quite so controversial. But on the other hand, he was a... He was a um, a good salesman, and he had an exceptionally good team of people around him who weren't always as valued as they could have been, like Jed Palmer. There was, of course, Cliff Morgan, famous from rugby, was on the board. Sir Neil McFarlane, the ex-minister of sport, was our chairman. 
Um, Nick Chesworth, who's still, I believe, uh, well, I don't know whether he's still working on Rugby World Cup, but up until very recently was still with IMG, who ended up with the rights for Rugby World Cup, the representation rights for Rugby World Cup. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing story because clearly only those sort of uh, deals really only happened in the early, early days. I mean, you could not even imagine someone having that type of rights now, right, um, or ever, whatever contract he yeah. has. Um, at least not in a major sport, you know, it might still happen in, in some minor sports uh, in some other parts of the world. But uh, interesting story yeah, there. Right, clearly. Marcus, and it's, it's very unlikely because normally you would find the only way people would have those sort of rights is if they were the founder of the event or the sport anyway. Correct. If they, if they, and they were trading on their own ticket with their own money. So, and that's always been an issue for me that uh, much of sport is trading with other people's money rather than using using their own money. That's right. But before we get in, yeah, let's let's keep going a bit here. Um, I'd love to touch a bit on. Then you you kind of did some work in motorsports, uh, MotoGP. I see the Indy Car World Racing Series there again. We're still in the nineties there. Yeah. Um, that- what do you guys do there? Was it also accreditation and pretty much what you were doing, yeah. uh, what we talked about earlier, or different roles? Yes, Marcus, that was a, those were both accreditation. Um, uh, Motor GP, and you'll have to excuse my onset of Alzheimer's here, but I, I do forget names, which is a, a great shame because a funny story about the Motor GP, uh, we flew, myself and a colleague flew to Madrid to pitch for that to uh, Dorna. Who, who I may even have the rights to this day, who knows. Um, but uh, we pitched to Dorna and we were going through our pitch on the plane on the way over there. As we were getting off the plane, the chief executive of Dorna, who we didn't know, had been sitting right behind us, had never met him. He said, um, hello, you must be Nigel. I said, yes. He said, I'm really looking forward to going through that proposal with you tomorrow. Because he obviously listened to everything we'd said on the right. <laughs> and I, it was jolly good news that during the presentation, he said, look, I think I've heard most of this. Why don't we just go to lunch? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I, I mean, Nigel, and, I, and again, it's a bit di- digressing. But one thing I've, I know you, and because then I've, I've met you, of course, many times, it's really this sort of bonding and the relationship building which you've done over the years in the industry, right? And I, I do believe that's such a critical part, right? How our industry works. I mean, how would you describe that? You know, how to get along with folks and, and that's, people like doing business with people who they like, of right? Of course, I mean, I mean all, probably the same everywhere. Yeah, of course. We all know that's one of the first rules of business. But look, in, the, in a lot of the things that we doing, Marcus, they can be pretty stressful. You you know, there's nothing more important to a a journalist or a broadcaster attending an event than access. And accreditation Mm. is their access, security protects them, etc. Sure, they all want to get fed and all that sort of thing, but they can't do their job without access. And it can get pretty tense at times. And what gets you through that is, is relationships. Having good relationships with, you know, I always took the point, people used to say to me, why do you spend so much time with the broadcasters? Well, it's it's very simple. Because the accreditation and and their access is critical to them to be able to do their jobs properly. And, And also, they are fundamentally, in most cases, paying for the event. And, um... They don't often get the recognition. Other thing is that I don't think people often get enough recognition in sport, although that is changing, is the talent. In show business, in the more in the music business, the focus is on the talent, on the act, on the artist. They're the ones that create the value. Um, and yeah. sometimes people forget that. You know, the old stories of, you know, the elite sports federation executives flying up the front of the plane and all the athletes down at the back of the plane. Sitting in the back. You know, mm. it seems to me bizarre. It's the wrong way around. Yeah. Well, and and, the, and it probably still exists in many in many sports still today, right? Uh, you can you can see that the, the gentlemen's in the jackets are are still very important, uh, even though in some cases they maybe feel they're a bit too important for for their own good. Right? Yeah, sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> you very yeah, you don't want to say anything, I know. That's all good. Um now now let's keep keep going here because I, I just love this list. Uh so we've got the Asian Games in Doha. That's uh, now we're in the in the in two thousand and six here. Mm-hmm. Um 
I, I'm not sure whether it was the first time you were uh, doing something in the Middle East at that time, but I know you do a lot of stuff now. Um, you know, what you were doing there, and, and, and how did that build your business in the Middle East? Yeah, well, that, that came about, um, we had done a few small things in the Middle East, but not in Qatar. Um, that was our first time of working in Qatar. And um, we were approached there, that wasn't accreditation, that was media management task and we were approached um, by some very experienced media guys who were already working on the project um, and um, asked us to uh, run the media management for them. We worked very closely with them. It was a big curve. We had to put in a, a very, a, quite a large team there, which is always a, um, a challenge to sh uh, that in those days it was really very difficult to, to know what team to put in who to have the contacts now you just go on LinkedIn right if you wanted a team to put in to run the media for a sports event somewhere that hadn't really hosted a major sports event before you'd pick them out on LinkedIn and you'd be you know you'd have a pretty easy time putting together but at the time you need contacts you need to get people who were prepared to up sticks and go and uh, live in somewhere like Doha for probably five or six months, um, some of them for longer, the, the senior managers and team. And, uh, and we had good people who had come off the back of things like the European Championships, Football Championships, Euro 96 in England. Um, people, we, the cha biggest challenge for us in Doha was that we were working concurrently on a Cricket World Cup in the West Indies. So we had split teams, we're in lots of locations, lots of venues. Um, Doha was amazing though. It was, it was a massive learning curve for the country. Um, but you know, the thing that I've learned working with the Qataris over years is they're really very charming people and they learn very quickly. And you know, I look forward with some excitement, honestly, to the next World Cup um, in in Doha, you know, they, they've used the strap line, expect amazing. And I'm pretty sure they will deliver amazing. That's that. I think people have got a treat coming, but that, that tournament, that, um, Asian games and people here, Marcus, you, you're based in Asia. So you understand, but people in the, your listeners in the West might not quite understand that, you know, the dynamics of this, a third of the world's population are living in Asia more by now. And the Asian Games, in, in some measures, is actually bigger than Olympic Games. You know, it, it has more, more sports, more athletes. It's, it's an extraordinary event, but of course, it gets no coverage in the West, so people don't hear about it. It was an eye-opener for us, put it that way. I uh, know, absolutely. It's a huge event in, in this part of the world here. Um, as you rightly said, it actually has more athletes. It has more competitions. There's more sports. Um, you know, you have a lot more, let's say, Asian, indigenous sports, uh, etc. So, uh, yeah, it is always, uh, no matter where, where it's hosted, uh, and the next one is coming up in China again um, in 2022, I believe. Wow. Uh, I think they're hosting it in, in Alibaba's uh, neighborhood there in uh, Hanju. So uh, yeah, the, the event is 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 always been very very large, um, and and for Asian countries, it is you know you're competing more I guess on an on an uh, e you know even playing field. Yeah. That's really why it is so important. Um, you're not really competing with the rest of the world that, in that sense. So uh, winning a medal um, and and winning the table, which mostly of course you know China and Japan, the big nations would do, uh, is critically important. So, uh, but you built obviously a very very strong relationship at that time because from what I can see, um, you are still an advisor uh, and you were an advisor when Qatar was bidding for 2020. Um, and I believe you're still there. Tell us a bit more, um, you know, what you guys are doing there and, and how did, you know, how we were involved in helping Qatar win 2020. Okay. So um, I think uh, something that many, uh, many people in sport don't realize is that whilst when, when we came from a PR company and marketing companies, we didn't stop our consulting work in marketing and PR. We continued of those on a parallel plane. So um, that developed, the, the thing that developed most in those areas was our strategic work on advising, on strategy, helping people to think about uh, issues and challenges and opportunities they have in, in perhaps different ways, using the advantage of being external but becoming internal, helping clients to 
think very carefully for themselves. Because, you know, my criticism, if you like, of the big accounting, uh, sorry, they started as accountants, they're now, of course, all consultants, management consultants. Those, those big firms tend to deliver solutions from clients which they've designed outside. For me, the best way to design solutions for clients are for the clients to have, assist the client to design their own solution. The application of it then becomes more vital for them. And uh, hmm. what happened there with uh, Qatar was serendipitous, really. They, they, we were then working after the Asian Games. We were working on a. Um, uh, FIFA, the World Club Championships, I think it was in Abu Dhabi, and um, again in accreditation and media, and they they we were approached um, by Qatar to come back. Would I mind on the way back? Would I pop in and have a chat with them? And to be honest, I had no idea that they were going to bid for the Cricket World Cup. Uh, sorry, the yeah, football World Cup. That would be something, <laughs> wouldn't it? Um, yeah, there would be something And we'd else. previously done a tiny little bit of work with the Football Association in England in preparation for their bid for the England World Cup. And at the time, um, the chief executive of Rushman's was Glenn Curtin, who had, uh, who had mm-hmm. good connections in uh, the Football Association in England. But um, we felt rather grieved by the English, um, the English bid because we put some ideas to them uh, which we thought were exceptional, which they actually used, and then they put that as part of proposals that we were discussing with them, and then they put the thing out to tender and they appointed someone else. So I was pretty miffed, if you like, with the English bid. Um, Getting the approach from Qatar, I mean, I can remember sitting with the guys in the Four Seasons in Doha and them telling me for the first time they were going to bid for the Football World Cup. And at first I thought they were crazy. And I told them so. And they, they, um, they were so fervent, so enthusiastic, and so open to thinking about how, and so determined to win. It was irresistible. And of course, everyone is always going to say, well, people work with Qatar for the money. It's not absolutely true, you know. Yes, they've got, got a lot of money, but they're quite careful with it. They're not crazy with it. And um, that, the thing that really attracted me to working with them at that time was the people. They're fantastic people to work with. And I've worked with those people today on different projects and in different ways. And um, they, uh, so I became a strategic advisor to the Qatar bid. And the first thing we did for them was used our structural visual thinking process to get everybody in the room and deconstruct what the what the context of the bid was, what the landscape looked like, how they're going to approach it, what they needed to do to win, uh, what any alternative strategies would be, and then to start a plan of how to go about it. And um, that was taken up it was uh, adopted from the very top and we were supported from the very top in that and uh, then it was it's really all their own work they can take complete credit for winning that world cup and uh, while i while i've got an opportunity of an audience i can tell you that i we were so strictly monitored by um various lawyers working for the world cup because they, even things that we suggested, when we saw other bids doing things when we were in South Africa and places like that, we saw, I traveled with them all over the world, we saw other bids who were, shall we say, bending the rules. And we would say, mm. we would say guys, why don't we do this? And they would say, absolutely not. Everybody is expecting us to break these rules and we're not going to do it. I did not once see any any, and I'm sure I would have done, seen any evidence of any impropriety in anything that they did. Um, and so watching, just watching over the last few years, everyone bashing away, accusing Qatar, all sorts, it's, it's crazy, you know. I never saw anything. I knew them really well. I still know them really well. I work with them every day. Um, mm. It was just really hard graft and hard work and very smart work. 
they yes they had that you know they do have the resources of decent really good budgets but they also very smart and how they yeah i love that story and and again i mean to me having a world cup in the middle east is amazing right for for all the all the many reasons um of course um the heat in the summer is the challenge and, we, and everyone knew that from the get-go so uh that it is being moved around, uh, and now from I remember at least what I, last time I read was uh, I guess it's going to be played in November, December. Um, I mean, let's see how that all will work out with with the current virus and everything in the world just being shifted around. I guess it might become easier, right? Because people are just getting used to now of the idea of that things aren't as standard anymore as it as uh, as we should expect. Um, actually, do you know how the count is going to be working out? I mean, 22 isn't that far off anymore. So, you know, by, by next season, they already need to be the clubs or the, the, the club t tournaments obviously need to be shifting. You any, you know anything about um, that? I, I don't know a lot about it, Marcus. I do know that probably the biggest challenges for them is the qualifications. Um, but... Oh, yeah. um, Just a, a thing about that uh, temperature thing, you know, just just the ingenuity of these guys. I mean, you can imagine, can't you, for someone like me working on a bid like that. I mean, I was once described as their devil's advocate, always the one who's saying, yes, but, yes, but, you know, no, you can't do that. No one will believe you, that sort of thing. But they get over these challenges. And I remember being extremely skeptical about their air, air cooling that they were posing for the stadiums, which is not air conditioning, as some people wrongly express it. It is an air cooling system designed specifically to do this job and given by the nation of Qatar to anyone else, the technology who wants to use it. It's quite typical of them. But, you know, I remember their first demonstration. They built a small stadium to demonstrate it in. The first time I sat in it, it was it was 38 degrees outside It was so cold inside in an open-air stadium that I had to put a jacket on. It was like <laughs> being at Chelsea in March, you know. Right. So, and uh, I've sat on a beach where they air-cooled it with this air coming up through the sand of the beach. It was too cold. I had to go and sit somewhere else. So, incredible. Yeah, it is incredible. But, yes, there yeah. will be challenges, I'm sure, with the qualifications. I mean, uh, uh, Doha is hosting a... Um, rounds of the AFC Championship now as, uh, as we speak, I believe. Um, so they're getting pretty good at hosting in these new stadiums and I'm sure they will do everything to make sure that this World Cup is amazing. Yeah. Now, I know since you are doing work with them, again, I'm assuming you, you would know a bit about this space, that uh, some of these venues are being built, or the stadiums are obviously built, what I recall, sort of temporarily, and then potentially being shipped into other parts of the world uh, and donated or, or sold. Um, where Is that still the plan, or what, what's the latest on that? Yes, Do you know anything as far that? as I'm aware, that's still the plan. And just to, to make it clear, most of my work with Qatar now is in other fields, more on the Right, okay. fields rather than directly with the World Cup, my friends at the World Cup, although I am hoping to uh, uh, some of the projects that we're talking about at the moment will come to fruition. But anyway, um, look, they've always had the plans of one of the stadiums is built with shipping containers. Others are built in demountable fashion where they can be reconfigured. Um, obviously, mm. a country the size of Qatar doesn't need that level of capacity after World right. Cup and they, they were well aware of that from the outset and at the time there was a huge amount of criticism of white elephants in stadia as we all know you know there's still many stadia around the world sitting not being used uh, as they could be um, but they've always had this and I, I believe most of it most of the um, and they are donations rather than being sold are going into Asia so And you know that Qatar alongside has a, a reach out to Asia program. They have a generation amazing program. They're, the Qatar's vision 2030 is very much about, you know, what I find so remarkable about these people. It's all what they can do for everybody else, which is refreshing as a Westerner to hear them talking about how does this benefit other people? You know, it's, it's a refreshing attitude. I love it. I love it. Yeah, very interesting. Um, now, so we've covered uh, events pretty much from we had earlier um, 
the West Indies, uh, obviously events in Europe, UK, uh, now we're in Asia. Now you were involved as well, I believe, at the, the South, South African uh, World Cup. And I think that was volunteer program. Now, that, again, that must have been very challenging or very interesting in many ways, right? You know, Marcus, you picked on something that one of my colleagues worked on. I didn't do it. I didn't have much involvement with that. Um, I think it was mostly based on the back of work that we did in the West Indies with a volunteer program. And that my colleague, uh, Peter, who ran that, um, worked with the World Cup volunteer program, basically building, yeah, um, you know, well, volunteer programs are not my specialist subject, Marcus, if I'm honest. I don't know much about them. Um, you'd have to ask one of the other guys. Yeah, no worries. But, uh, but you know, again, you know, you know a few things about it, right? And, and, I, and we had conversations about it before as well when we were uh, trying to get involved in certain events here. And, and again, the volunteer side of it is just such a critical part, right, to get it right um, and training sort of that volume. And I know you had some uh, colleagues in, uh, which are specialists in that. So uh, maybe we'll keep that for another conversation there. The um, thing, Marcus, that was, a bit, you know, from, from, for me about South Africa is we've worked a lot in South Africa. You know, I've had a company in South Africa for many, many years. Um, there are some superstars in sports marketing in South Africa, as sure you know, as, uh, people like George yeah. Routenbach of Mega Pro. These guys come to mind. We've worked um, rugby World Cups, cricket World Cups in South Africa, um, 2020s, all sorts of tournaments. It's a fabulous country, but it has enormous challenges. And um, but, you know, there are some countries we're talking about volunteers, which are much more difficult. Doha, for instance, is a pretty difficult place to go and get a, a serious volunteer program. And mm. if you think of you think of Qatar altogether, the challenges that these guys overcome is a three million population, a three broadly speaking, 300,000 Qataris, the rest of the rest are expats. Um, so even if you think about the challenges of staffing up with stewards, security officers who, who really can't be volunteers, of course, and then you take the volunteers, yeah. these people have got to come in from overseas. And those are, those are big, big logistical and very importantly training challenges to train expats to go into another country to do that work is a challenge in itself. In COVID times, um, you know, a lot of this training has to be done for, for obvious reasons and economic reasons online. And you won't be surprised yeah. to hear me say that I do have an interest in an online training programs for these sort of people. Yeah, I do remember you. I remember you when you built that actually a few years ago. Um, now, the, another one I want to pick on, and then we'll go a bit into a, a different direction here, is the what you did at the London Olympics. Because again, I, I thought it was really interesting that you were involved in accreditation, but in this case for the non-accredited media. Uh, and I remember we were sort of trying to replicate some of that uh, in other parts of the world after, um, which maybe didn't quite work out yet. But talk a bit about it, because I, I feel it was a really interesting opportunity and in, in how you guys positioned it, yeah. because you work with the City of London, right, sure. to be specific. Sure, we did. We did two things. Um, uh, we did two things during the, the Olympics in London. One was um, to run on behalf of the uh, Mayor of London, uh, City of London, the... Um, the non-accredited media centre. And what, what that's for is for a, a news media and people who are going to come and visit the city. And obviously, um, London wants to put on its best face for them, but they're not, and they're not sports journalists. They're not going to be covered by, by Olympic accreditation. Um, so, uh, but also, you, it's a mistake to just let these people go unshepherded or just let them loose in town. There are insurance aspects of things about film crews just going out onto streets and filming and things. So it's become quite the norm now in a major event to have the host city run a non-accredited media centre, and that's what we did. Um, another, mm. another aspect of our involvement in the London Olympics was with the knowledge of LOCOG, the London Organising Committee, um, I'm not saying approval, I'm saying with their knowledge, 
We ran, we ran um, broadcast studios in Marshgate Lane around the side for um, a lot of other broadcasters who didn't get enough capacity in their Olympic accreditation, um, obviously. So we, we built studios, um, we built stand-up positions that broadcasters could use. And that's, that's something we've done in as well. Um, and, you know, that's often where I say, you know, the difference between us and others is that we will risk our own money. You know, we're doing that on our risk. There's no client as such. We take the financial risk. Um, and, you know, that's, and that probably means that we deal with money in a slightly different way than, than some other organizations. Yeah, and that's a it's a very nice segue into uh, I know something which is dear to your heart, and that is how ballooned you know how big a lot of these budgets now become, um, and how in some cases in events which maybe used to be run by thirty, forty, fifty people, now you have hundreds of people um, in the organizing committee, um, and I think you you believe is that. Uh, that is overblown and money often spent, uh, you know, in the wrong in the wrong way. What, what you know, take a bit into. I, I, I certainly agree with you. Now, look, um, I, there's a bit of history to this, but to try and make it brief, because uh, um, in in when the Sydney Olympics was run, was really, a, a, in my view, a step change in major sports events. The Sydney Olympics, Sydney threw everything at those Olympics, and by every measure, everyone says it was a wonderful Olympics. But what it did do was spawn a massive organisation. It, it, it really did ramp up the idea of functional areas, and those functional areas went on to be developed into a lot of siloed organisational Things. So everybody working in their own areas, no cross-fertilization or even communication in many instances amongst those. It also spun out into other events in terms of, oh, yes, well, you do need someone. Not only do you need a transport manager, an assistant transport manager, a deputy transport manager, and, yes, you need those in every single, every single location, um, every single venue. You also need a parking manager, a parking this guy, a this guy, a this guy. And more and more of these people became on staff rather than as volunteers. And it just ballooned out of all control. And then if you take something like look at the 1991 World Cup, which I maintain to this day is the most complex rugby World Cup ever staged because of the nature of it being amongst five host unions. That in itself is a big organisational burden, but it, it would have a tenth of the number of people running it then as, as a World Cup would now. And yet there's a similar amount of matches. There might be a few more matches. There's a few more teams, but not much. There's a few more spectators, but not much. There's less media, journalists, written media, because they've all consolidated. And there's probably about the same amount of broadcasters attending. So, you know, it, for me, um, and a big part of the work that we do now commercially for organizations, especially in the US, is about optimization, optimization of operations and budgets and things. And I think the reason that we've become very good at that was because in those days we were doing it with our own money. So if we were profligate, if we overspent or overemployed, um, I can just hear the, 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 the people that used to work for me listening to this saying, oh, you, you worked us to death, you dog. <laughs> but in all, in all reality is we were never given the sort of budgets that people have now, that people have internally. Um, so, you know, huge allocations of budgets are made, masses of amounts of stuff. And if people look within themselves and are really honest, they know damn well that on many of these major events around the world, there are people sitting around doing pretty much nothing. Um, and I've seen it. I know it. I could prove that if I have to. And I think it's disappointing because actually what that does is take money out of wherever it should really be going, which is probably the development of the sports or charities in sports or not coming out of the public purse. And that was another big change. 
when major events became so huge they couldn't possibly survive without the support of governments. And then at the moment you do that, of course, you've got public money coming into events and things, and that's a different spending environment altogether. Yeah, I know, all very interesting points. And and I think, again, now we're, we're no one, you know, was could predict, you know, what happened with COVID here, um, you know, a few years ago. Um, but now we're in it, um, you know, and you see the industry, how it's hurting. Um, and again, that fat, which you were talking about, whether it's from an events point of view or maybe in other areas of the business, uh, really has to go. Um, or the industry will, of course, uh, you know, will struggle, you know, at least in the, in the very near future here uh, over the next few years. Right? Yep. I mean, that's an obvious. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, anybody who's not seriously looking carefully about how they think their major event or any event or any initiative whatsoever will emerge from this crisis. I mean, we're all doing it, right? I mean, how many blogs do we all get? How many things do we all get sent every day about sharpen up your company ready for? But every, everybody's got um, individual ways of emerging for this. The thing we, we'd all like to know is when we're going to emerge from this current crisis. Um, very difficult. But I do think that anybody who sits in any industry or any organisation anywhere and thinks their operations won't be changed by this is dreaming. Absolutely. You know, and that's obviously some of the work you guys are doing now, right? If, if I sort of uh, look at that correctly, um, what we talked about earlier, strategy planning, um, optimization, you know, using mind mapping or what you guys call structural visual thinking. Um, this is really what it's all about, right? Uh, what, that's, yeah, I mean, that, that's, our, that's our focus. That's certainly 95% of work. I mean, and just a, a slight correction from mind mapping, which was – really much invented by Tony Buzan, who also uh, passed on re recently. Um, structured visual thinking is, is slightly more involved with my, than mind mapping. Mind mapping tends to be something an individual would do to help them think through things. Structured visual thinking is, is how it normally transpires for us in our context, is that when a client has any sort of challenge or opportunity, we would like, with my partner, John Caswell, We would go into a, a, a room, a large room with white walls. We'd cover it with electrostatic paper and we'd draw out all of the issues and draw out of the client everything surrounding that, that problem and we deliver for them a cohesive framework and strategy coming out of that of how, how they're going to approach their challenge or their opportunity. And then often, often clients ask us to get involved with continuing with the implementation of those solutions. Hmm. Very interesting. Uh, can you give us some examples? I know you've, you've done some stuff in Cuba or, and you're working with other governments around the world, um, just, you know, or, or companies, uh, you know, give us something specific maybe here just uh, as a good example. Okay. It, this, is, this is where it gets difficult for us because, as you all appreciate, anyone who has challenges and opportunities, they normally don't want them discussed with anyone. <laughs> so okay. I, can, I can give some, rather than specifics, I can give some generalizations. It might be um, uh, um, a commercial organization um, restructuring and thinking about how they're going to adapt to a change in market conditions or a new technology that is um, that has changed their market landscape or changed their operating parameters or abilities. Um, so it could be um, a motor manufacturer saying, how are we going to respond with the onset of, EV, of electric vehicles? It could be um, a technology provider finding that um, their telecom technology has been is about to be superseded by something else. And how should they respond to that? Should they invest in it, try and acquire it? Um, withdraw from the market entirely and focus on other. So looking at their options, opportunities, it could be broadcasters um, coming to terms with um, the growth of the zone. You know, it could be the zone looking at other, look at other broadcasters, you know. So it's, yeah. it's very varied. I mean, the, the easiest way to think of it is any challenge or opportunity that is worthy of some serious thought. 
And we challenge people to think, um, I don't like the expression outside the box, but we challenge them to think about it using different uh, thinking models of thinking um, and help them assist them through that process. Yeah, I like that. And, and I think you're in uh, on the website, the tagline is uncommon thinking to deliver common sense. And and I think that's I love that uh, the part about common sense, because in most cases, that's really what it is. Right? It, it is really just bringing it down to common sense for folks. Um, and I guess your format or your structural visual thinking is what it you know, what gets to it. At the, that's the end result. That's absolutely spot on, Marcus. You should you should come and help us work for us, Brett. You should get on the sales trail for us. But the, the, other thing, the, other, the other thing, Marcus, I would say is because um, along with many of your other guests on this podcast, I'm now reaching those venerable old uh, years. There's one good thing that I've spotted about. There are two good things I've spotted about getting older in this business or any other business. One, you start to care less about what people think which enables you to be more frank and more direct. And secondly, you have that little bit more experience where you've probably bumped up against issues and problems similar in the past, and you can impart that, that, those learnings onto others to help them when they bump into similar issues. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and look, you know, you're in you're in your mid 60s here. Um, you've done amazing stuff over 40 years in the industry, uh, which we touched on across the board. Um, and I want to get uh, while we're wrapping this up here, just a couple more thoughts from you. Um, number one is, if you look at your career, what's your biggest learnings? You know, what would you give to yourself if you go 40 years back um, and knowing what you know now? What would you tell yourself? Never react in haste, always sleep on it, always think carefully about how you will respond and always try and think through all the angles from everybody else's perspective. Mm. Nice, I like that. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great tip there. Um, and of all the things which you have done, and, and I know you've been very successful uh, Uh, in your career, but you know there are failures, of course, as well. What would be sort of uh, one of them uh, if you want to talk about it, and also what you learned from it? I would say two two things that I'm most proud of, the greatest successes. Um, one was the 1991 World Cup because it really was flying by the seat of your pants stuff for everybody involved, and they were a super bunch of people. And of course, everything has its ups and downs. Um, the other one would have been the triumph of Qatar 2022, um, winning the World Cup. That was a, an outstanding moment in my life and everybody who was involved. Um, I can imagine. You know, that was a that was a once in a lifetime night in Switzerland. And, the, and, and if there was a and where, where and where did you feel? Where give me two? Give me one or two where it, you feel? Wow, we really screwed this one. Yeah. Or something didn't go right. Yeah, I think the biggest one of those, um, there's two things, Marcus. I'm sure along the way there have been people that I haven't, I haven't done the best as well for as I could have done. I've, I've tried to live by, by going on, by saying never step on people, never, di never intentionally disadvantage anybody else. I've tried to live with that. I hope I've done that. But... I'm sure there will be transgressions. The biggest disappointment, I think, or the biggest commercial error maybe I made was that I worked very hard to democratize accreditation for smaller events by building a system called iAccredit, um, which was an online accreditation system, a software as a service system, where people could just go on and do accreditation themselves. Um, we failed in that. I think there's numerous reasons, far too long to go on here. That was a huge disappointment for me. I invested heavily in it. I think it was a great idea. I still think it's a good idea. Um, we were asked for it many times over the years, but I just, I don't know, we just didn't get the right demand for it. Maybe I spent too much on it. Anyway, I certainly learned a lot of lessons from it. 
Yeah, I, and I do remember that we had various conversations about it, and so obviously I don't didn't follow it. So uh, so that one uh, unfortunately didn't quite happen. Uh, I know you build it, you build an amazing yeah. platform there, but I guess the demand um, or uh, or people didn't really pick it up as you expected. Yeah, not enough. There wasn't enough volume going through it to keep maintaining it. Yeah, yeah, interesting. We all had some of those. Uh, trust me. Um, <laughs> if anyone wants to buy it and take it off our hands, very cheap. I said more than well. We'll keep that in mind. Um, now wrapping it up here, um, you know, looking a bit forward again. Uh, you know, we got obviously crazy year here, two twenty. Uh, you know, well, I'm sure most people are happy when it's over. Uh, but it doesn't look like 21 is going to be that much easier, right? Um, yes, we've moved these big events up, the Euro Olympics and God knows so many other events uh, who didn't happen this year, all trying to come back next year. But uh, this virus isn't going anywhere time anytime soon here from at least what I can see. Um, where do, what do you see what's happening and, and how would you as, a, you know, being an events man, you know, been around all these events for 40 years, what would you give uh, some advice or how would you look at it? Well, I think the first thing I would do is, and I know how difficult this is for people, is I would try and keep things as fluid as I could at the moment. You know, not, not putting big markers in the stand and saying, okay, we're postponing to February of 2021 or something. Because I think it can almost do as much damage having to keep rescheduling um, it's a lot of work to reschedule an event and to keep rescheduling. I think pe people, when they can, and I know this is difficult, is try and stay fluid and say, look, we're keeping it under review. We're not going to, we cannot host it at X time, but we're going to keep it under review. And as soon as things stabilize a bit, we'll set a new day. That, that's what we do. The, uh, for our own thinking, in the projects that we're involved with, We've been strongly advised by some very senior scientists and committees and things that um, certainly in the US, we're not planning to do anything. We're not even considering any live gatherings of any people until the second half of 2021. Right. Yep. And, and I, I don't need to be a scientist. I would say the same. Yep. <laughs> um, and and, and it, it just that's what it appears, right? It's clear um, that there's still going to be too much uncertainty. Um, there's most likely not a vaccination out there yet. Mm. So uh, you know, and these large, you know, that's what our large, these large sporting events we've been talking about uh, the last hour, which which they're all about, right? I yeah. mean, every time I'm I watch a clip of a football match now with a full stadium, you have the sound and the roar of the stadium. You're like, wow, I do miss that, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just so different to watch it now with an empty stand, and no matter how great the soundtracks and other things they come up with, but it's just, you miss that crowd. Well, sure, of course. The other thing to consider, Marcus, is the psychology of people is, is are they going to travel to mega events, right? Are people going to want to travel halfway around the world to visit a major sports event? There's a lot of work, work to be done on, the, on regaining the confidence of spectators, yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's there is so many moving parts. Uh, you know, the organizing committee is only one part of the puzzle, right? Of how they would deal with it on the ground. Oh. You have to bring the athletes in, right? How do the athletes prepare? If you keep saying, "Sorry, I can't tell you when the event's going to happen," it will happen, but uh, I can't tell you right now when. Yeah. How on earth are you going to prepare for that? Um, never mind if you are a fan and you want to come and visit the the event. Uh, you know how you book your stuff. So it's just it's so much up in the air. Yeah. It's it's unbelievable yeah. and. Uh, clearly, ne neither you or me will figure it all out here, but uh, maybe we're part of it in small ways uh, across the world um, and we'll maybe continue to be there for a bit longer. Yeah, you prompted me to think a little bit harder about that. Huh? So, Yeah, good. Let's go do yeah. that. But, uh, Nigel, thank you very much for your time here. I really enjoyed this uh, with, with, like I said, this huge career you've had and the amazing events you've been involved in. We could go on for another hour. Um, but, uh, you know, we're all sensitive of time of people listening as well. So thanks so much. Do you have any last thought? Um, and, and just in case, uh, people can catch you at nigelrushman.com. That's your own blog. Uh, people can follow that. And, of course, rushmans.com is the website for the company. Um, any other way, uh, things you'd like to uh, mention? People, thank you, Marcus. I, I'd like to thank you for inviting me on here. I think feel almost unworthy given some of the – company I'm keeping with your other guests, many of whom I know, 
um, and maybe having a good chuckle at my expense. But anyway, I'm sure we'll all hook up soon. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed this. It's good to good to rake over things. But um, anybody wants to get in touch with me, please do. Nigel Rushman at rushmans.com or through the website or anywhere. Appreciate it. Awesome. Nigel, you have a great day there and great weekend uh, coming out in Monaco. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks, Marcus. Cheers. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.